It is John Saxon's Story Podcast, and today, Chapter 15, Part 2, will be read by Paul and Jenny Hatch. Dr. Finn wrote, the, found, the pattern is familiar, a problem is found, a crisis is declared, the organizations that allowed the problem to develop commence, with ample fanfare, to unveil elaborate plans to solve it, federal agencies and private foundations disgorge dollars, committees are created, meetings held, draft reports circulated. He said that almost as familiar is the emergence of a new conventional wisdom about what went awry and what needs doing. For example, kids shouldn't have to be bored. Drill and practice have become dirty words with the math avant-garde, roughly equivalent to the standing of the Pledge of Allegiance among the social studies he then spoke of John Saxon, a renegade, who rarely finds himself invited to sip lime seltzer with today's busy reformers. Dr. Finn said that although such views of repetition ring true to most laymen, they inflame the math profession. Worse, he said, is that Saxon refuses to confess his sins. He said John's critics concede he has one promising notion that of incremental development. Saying it is neither the traditional approach nor faddish. Dr. Finn suggested that incremental development simply looks awfully like an ornate term for common sense. Regardless, he did not think additional evidence favorable to John would move the profession. For what is going on here is above all political. Never are defenders of a conventional wisdom pricklier than when they themse are themselves engaged in a lemming-like <clears throat> lemming migration from one version to another. Never is heresy put down more harshly than when the dogmas of the established church are newly revised. Dr. Finn summarized, if Saxon is right, then a lot of people with fat reputations in the field must be wrong. Education barons don't like to be wrong. They like even less to be told they are wrong. So long as state and local educators can be dissuaded from buying more of Saxon's books, he can be shunned. After all, what really matters isn't whether youngsters learn math. It's whether the profession gains in stature and public acclaim in consequence of its efforts, however ill-conceived to address the problems it may fairly be said to have created, all the while retaining control of the processes of diagnosis and solution. Isn't that what an establishment is all about? One of the lighter stories about the use of his books was repeated by John in 1987, in a 1987 advertisement in the American School Board Journal. A Michigan high school teacher named Sheila K. Smith had sent him a letter to accompany a Valentine card that had been prepared by her students. She said that after one semester of the Saxon pilot program, students were trying to get into the Saxon classes at mid-year. Parents were phoning her to see if she could pull some strings and other math teachers and administrators were asking, why do we have to wait another year to adopt this program? She then wrote, our students would give up their shoes rather than surrender their Saxon books. 
and we have 12 inches of snow on the ground. Mrs. Smith added, our school has a local TV school channel, which broadcasts daily. Prior to semester exams, the teachers in each department prepare an exam review program, which airs evenings and beams the review directly into the students' homes for a week prior to exams. The math department aired a crawl, which said, Saxon math students can correctly work their math problems while hanging upside down underwater at midnight, blindfolded with one hand tied behind their backs, writing with their toes while chewing gum, eating crackers, whistling the national anthem, fighting off marauding sharks, completing a correspondence course in bird watching on the moon, browsing through the Encyclopedia Britannica and completing the meaning of the universe. Go Saxon champions. That was our entire review and it was totally adequate for Saxon students. She closed. I think perhaps there can be no higher compliment to you than to tell you how much feeling my students have for you. After 17 years, I know it is remarkable if a student could tell me the color of his math book to say nothing of knowing who authored it. The Saxon students trust you and work hard and do well for themselves, for me and for Mr. Saxon. Another high school teacher, Janice Harms of Missouri sent a letter to the editor of the Missouri Council of Teachers of Mathematics Bulletin in 1985. She wrote, in February 1984, I finally got so frustrated with teaching Algebra 2 to my students, I decided to try John Saxon's Algebra 2 book. During 1984 to 1985, I conducted a pilot study comparing the performance of my students using Dolciani's Algebra 2 book with the performance of students using Saxon's books. The results indicated the Saxon class completed more homework, made higher grades, and retained more algebraic knowledge. However, other factors not measured became apparent as the study progressed. One, Saxon students lear learned to like word problems and not dread them. Two, she could easily pinpoint what topic each student did not understand and could help clarify the procedures. Three, she could use time effectively. No worksheets were needed since enough practice was provided. No review day was needed before a test because every assignment was a review. Tests could be scheduled any day of the week to accommodate her and the students. Little planning time was needed since topics were arranged in the most sensible order. No tests had to be made. Two usable tests were provided. If she were absent, her students could continue with their regular work no matter what the training of the substitute. I feel that every Saxon student had the best possible opportunity to learn her emphasis, learn math, not just do problems and try to pass tests. For the first time, I finished an algebra class with a good feeling and my students feel content with themselves. I hope my experience will be of help to you and others. A particular note was her reference to substitute teachers. A frequent complaint about reform math materials is they are so different from the norm that substitute teachers cannot teach a math class. 
The lost learning time for students because of substitute teachers in general has never been adequately determined. With Saxon materials, students can literally run the math class when the teacher is absent. 10 teachers signed a testimonial for John in one of his advertisements in 1988. From Ukiah, California, the teachers said they had been using Saxon materials for three years and the series had allowed them to become managers who could require that all steps of all problems be completed daily. They said students soon realized they couldn't skip problems, couldn't skip steps or problems, and that understanding would come in time. They didn't always like working so hard, but they rarely complained. Our students smile a lot, they wrote. They have confidence they can learn. Our enrollment in Algebra 2 went from three to 11 sections in two years. The teacher said they had gone from no, no students in calculus to 31 that year. The greatest surprise is in the attitudes of the students. Saxon has improved our curriculum and also helped us become more creative and exacting teachers. Invite any contact with us for more information. An Oklahoma superintendent and the math chairman of an Arizona high school were featured with their testimonials in a 1986 advertisement. Superintendent Stanley Dix said the Saxon books do work wonders, but they, were, they are not magic. He explained, Saxon's books work because they make the students work. Students become work-oriented and don't mind work because they learn. Grumbling stops in several weeks to be replaced with grudging admiration for what they have learned and are learning. They do not seem to mind working hard as long as they succeed. Walter S. Hoffman from Arizona said, as a calculus teacher and department chair for 20 years, I cannot describe the satisfaction our staff of 16 teachers feels. The chairman of our science department, a chemistry teacher, smiles at me every time we talk about the Saxon program. Cigarro Hill High, Cigarro High School heartily endorses all the Saxon tests published to date. John's materials quickly became the favored resource for homeschooling families. Speaking at a workshop of the Teaching Parents Association, a group representing our, an estimated 1,000 families that homeschool their children, he said, isn't it obscene that mamas and daddies are having to educate their children at home and they're having to pay taxes. Another at another parents' conference in Illinois, John told the crowd, we can no longer afford to implement untested pedagogy. They have not been able to name one school that has used these methods to cause measurably, they have not been able to name one school that has used these methods to cause measurable gains. In what seemed to be a bizarre twist of thinking, however, a handful of homeschooling parents did decide to ban Saxon in 1993, which included not printing his advertisements in their publications or even speaking his name. One of their own took them on. Mary Pride, publisher of Practical Homeschooling Magazine, wrote about the brouhaha in her column. She told of how a few parents had begun to circulate letters condemning the Saxon test texts as new age and urging others to boycott them because, they said, the original Saxon texts 
had a light sprinkling of references to demons, poltergeists, and other spiritual beings. John Saxon, not being either fundamentalist Christian or New Ager, she wrote, thought they were harmless fairy tale creatures that could spice up his problems. She said that John promptly cleaned up his books, but letter writers objected to occasional use of words such as hoyden and ribald, references to medieval life. She acknowledged that to them only, any mention of medieval occupations or weaponry was a sneaky plot to entwine readers in the occult. Miss Pride said she decided to read through every word problem in the Saxon editions. And subsequently, she came up, she came up with several conclusions. First, Saxon is very moralistic. His books use pejorative terms about sins such as cheating, coastal behavior, laziness, etc., and condemns certain behavior as wrong. If this isn't Christian, take me out and shoot me, she wrote. Second, Saxon attempts to spark interest in other school subjects, such as history and chemistry, with frequent allusions to history, literacy, and scientific subjects. Third, the references to fairies, etc., were few and far between, but were inevitably irrelevant. Some books have no such references, she said. No true New Ager would like a picture of the fairy queen counting toadstools, said Mrs. Pride. It sounds too much like Saxon doesn't believe in these things. Her column concluded that objecting parents, after reading the few offending problems, had the following choices. Use the books as is. Use any problems you consider questionable to teach your children the truth about fairies, magicians, etc., or use a magic marker. Oops, she said a felt-tipped marker. <laughs> to delete problems you don't like or eliminate the problems altogether. In a boxed area at the center of her magazine page, Mrs. Pride had composed the following word problem for her readers. If the math book had over 120 chapters, each with over 29 problems, plus an additional 200 plus problems in the back, and if only 10 of the problems were questionable, what percent of the problems were questionable? Mary Pride. Then she showed each book's total number of problems with the number of potentially questionable ones that might upset these parents. Math 54, more than 4,500 problems with 12 that might be questionable, elves, leprechauns, etc. Math 6-5, no questionable problems. Math 7-6, about 5,000 problems with six of possible concern. Math 8-7, more than 4,000 problems with five potentially unsatisfactory. Algebra 1-2, is it one half? It's one half, yeah. Algebra one half, more than 4,500 problems with 10 such problems. Algebra one, more than 4,500 problems with eight of them. Algebra two, about 4,000 problems with five. Advanced math, more than 4,000 problems with three. She ended her column by saying, John Saxon encourages you to send problems you would like to see in his upcoming editions. Miss Pride also gave John space to respond to the critical parents. He wrote, I have removed offensive things such as replacing demons with gremlins. 
He explained that as a pilot in World War II, the metal would contract at 20,000 feet and make grinding and squealing noises. Pilots invented gremlins for little men running around causing these strange noises. He said he had removed ghouls, poltergeists, etc. I thought those were medieval folk tales, and I put them in the book for fun for the kids. He said he had taken out everything that referred to the occult, but I adamantly refused to take out ghosts, fairies, leprechauns, and all the wonderful little imaginary people that populate the Disney movies and the stories that children have found so fascinating for hundreds of years. John wrote that the only way anyone can fight the occult is to make a joke of it. You can't protect children from rampant things in our society by refusing ever to talk about them. He really couldn't understand their violent objection to the mention of Greek gods, however. If your children are not familiar with the Greek gods, they lose much of our heritage, contended John. All of the famous writers of the 18th and 19th and 20th centuries make reference to Greek mythology, not because the Greek gods were true and not because the Greek myths were true, but because everything we have in our culture comes from the Jews and the Greeks. Expressing a sense of bewilderment, John said, most letters are from good people who confuse Christianity and ignorance. What stresses me is how much pleasure many of these Christians get out of the hate. Of all the things they could spend their energy on, it looks like I would be the least offensive because my books do so much for their children's understanding of math. He then added that for words, the parents considered offensive, a good solution is to explain, there are no such things as ghosts, as ghosts and there are no fairies. For most other parents, their anger was about the historical mathematical concepts and principles that were missing from their children's books. That anger finally boiled over in 1994 in California. Some parents feared their children, who many said could not even make correct change when counting money, were being left behind by a politically correct and mathematically incorrect educational experiment. They said the California math frameworks that was issued in 1992 for schools to follow was responsible for causing a serious downturn in the quality of mathematics course materials in California. In the Vista School District, parents rebelled when they learned their children's textbooks were trying to make math easier to swallow by not requiring correct answers. One fourth grade textbook told teachers, your job is not to judge the rightness and wrongness of each student's answer. Let those determinations come from the class. Avoid showing any verbal or nonverbal signs of approval and ask, does everybody agree? Parents were becoming attuned by this time to the spin from government leaders who had put their faith and money behind the NCTM program. For example, U.S. Education Secretary Richard Riley released modest improvement scores in April 1993 from the National Assessment of Education Progress, NAEP report, and said it showed a positive statement about the increased attention that is being given to mathematics in our schools and in our homes. What the report actually showed 
was that nationally only one in four students had fully mastered the math at his or her grade level or beyond. Only two to 4% showed any superior math performance and only six of 10 students mastered the mathematics expected at their grade level. Even Iris Carl, past president of NCTM admitted this meant the students' major improvements were at very low levels. Secretary Riley did agree that, quote, perhaps the best magic comes from hard work, challenging curriculum, and improved practice geared to world standards. Adding to the fuel of parents' discontent were the results of in 1995 of the TIMSS Trends in Mathematics and Science Studies report. It was the most comprehensive international studies ever attempted with researchers comparing the mathematics and science education levels of more than one half million students around the world. American students outperformed math students in only two other countries, Cyprus and South Africa. A group of parents decided it was time to make their presence and their views known to educators who they feared in the words of one concerned father are making experiments of our children Many of these parents joined by college mathematicians would become supporters of Saxon mathematics in the textbook adoption battles of California, and they would ultimately win. That is the end of chapter 15. Thank you for stopping by. We will resume next time with chapter 16. I hope everyone has a great day.